The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 39, to the chief musician, to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. I said, I will guard my ways, lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle, while the wicked are before me. I was mute with silence. I even held my peace. Uh, I held my peace even from good, and my sorrow was stirred up. My heart was hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Lord, make me to know my end. Anybody ever wanted that one? I, I, I hope my end is today and it's with the sound of a trumpet. <laughs> Lord, make me to know my end and what, me- what is the measure of my days that I may know how frail I am. Indeed, you have made my days as handbreadths and my age is as nothing before you. Certainly every man at his best is but a vapor. At his best state is but a vapor. Selah. Surely every man walks about like a shadow. Surely they busy themselves in vain. He heaps up riches, and he does not know who will gather them. And now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the reproach of the foolish. I was mute. I did not open my mouth, because it was you who did it. Remove your plague from me. I am consumed by the blow of your hand. When the rebukes you correct... When with rebukes you correct man for iniquity, you make his beauty melt away like a moth. Surely every man is vapor, Selah. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am am a stranger with you, a sojourner as all my fathers were. Remove your gaze from me that I may regain strength before I go away and am no more. Okay, our sermon today is from Exodus 35. We are getting really close to the end of the book of Exodus. We've got five more chapters after this one. Uh, Exodus 35, 1 through 19, it's entitled, A Call to Service. All right, so Exodus 35, starting in verse 1. Then Moses gathered all the congregation of the children of Israel together and said to them, These are the words which the Lord has commanded you to do. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh day shall be a holy day for you a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire throughout your dwellings on the Sabbath day. And Moses spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord commanded, saying, Take from among you an offering to the Lord. Whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it as an offering to the Lord, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen, and goat's hair, ramskins dyed red, badger skins, and acacia wood, oil for the light and spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. All who are gifted artisans among you shall come and make all that the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle, its tent, its covering, its clasps, its boards, its bars, its pillars, and its sockets. The ark and its poles with the mercy seat and the veil of the covering. The table and its poles, all its utensils and the showbread. Also the lampstand for the light, its utensils, its lamps, and the oil for the light. 
the incense altar, its poles, the anointing oil, the sweet incense, and the screen for the door at the entrance of the tabernacle of meeting, the altar of burnt offering with its bronze grating, its poles, all its utensils, and the laver in its base, the hangings of the court, its pillars, their sockets, and the screen for the gate of the court, the pegs of the tabernacle, the pegs of the court, and their cords, the ministry, the garments of ministry for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons to minister as priests. In today's passage, as with next week's and a couple weeks after that as well, we will have a significant amount of repetition from previous sermons. However, it's repetition which stems from passages which go all the way back through all of the instructions for the construction of the sanctuary. If you, and I mean every person here, remember more than 1% of what we talked about in those sermons, you have an excuse to nap while we review. <laughs> However, I am going to now hand out a proficiency test to make sure you qualify before I approve your nap. All right? In all honesty, as I was reviewing these verses and getting things prepared, I was astonished at how much I did not retain. Going back over those 22 sermons, I could not believe the amount of detail that we covered. The symbolism of Christ in each of those things described to Moses is simply overwhelming. If you missed those sermons, you missed a great deal, and I would encourage you to take the time and to listen to them. For now, what was presented to Moses will be restated to the people, calling them to a life of holiness in conduct. The call to holiness in life will be by a short explanation of the law of the Sabbath. The calling to holiness in conduct will come by a request for offerings of material and service from the people. Now, think about that from our perspective today. Is it any different? We have been called to holiness by resting in Christ, what he has accomplished for us. This is our first obligation. After that, we have been called to holiness by giving of our possessions in the service of Christ, and then the giving of ourselves in a more complete service to Christ. I'm going to repeat this thought in just a couple of minutes during the sermon itself in hopes that it will sink in through repetition. What Israel did is the same thing that we are asked to do. Our text verse comes from Romans chapter 12. It's verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The only difference between Israel and us is that they worked and then they rested. We rest, meaning calling on Christ, and then we work. They gave of their goods, they gave of their lives, and they rested in anticipation of the Messiah's promised rest, which was yet ahead. We rest in that which they looked forward to. In this completion of his work, we then are given the chance to give of our goods and then of our lives. Please, though, don't think this is a call for you to give to the superior word. That's never been something that we've done, and I hope it never will be. And yet the Lord has always, always, always provided for this ministry. It is up to you where you give your tangible gifts and your gifts of service, but you are, in fact, to give. You cannot be a living sacrifice if you are not sacrificing. The animal on the altar was presented by the people to God. It died there right by the altar. We, on the other hand, died on the altar with Christ, and now we are to live for Christ as that gift which is being offered to God. In whatever way you determine, and as the Lord prospers you, so you should return yourself to the Lord. 
The call is made today by Moses. It is a call which contrasts a shameful act of giving, which was not long past. After the call is made, work on the Lord's dwelling place can begin. And you? The call was made when you responded. Now you should be actively working on being a more perfect part of that more perfect temple which the Lord is building. Types and shadows of the reality that we now live in Jesus Christ are seen in today's verses. And so let's get into it. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have a few thoughts for you today. The first is the law of the Sabbath, which is verses 1 through 3. Verse 1, then Moses gathered all the congregation of the children of Israel together. The word gathered here comes from the verb kahal, which means to gather as an assembly. It comes from the more common noun kahal, which is the assembly itself. That was first used in this verb form in Exodus 32, verse 1, when the people gathered together to Aaron in order to demand the making of a golden calf. Now it is used for the second time in complete contrast to that. Instead of gathering together for disobedience to the Lord and his commands, they are being called together for honoring him. He has spared them despite their rebellion, and because of his mercy, Moses is calling them together as a people to come and learn the way of holiness. In today's verses, we will see three separate sections by which they will learn this way. Each step is carefully positioned and methodically presented in order for the people to understand this way of holiness. He will begin with the external display of how they are expected to live in this manner by first repeating the Sabbath requirement to them once again. He will then continue with this in asking them for donations of articles in order to build the sanctuary which will stand in their midst and from which their means of interacting with him in holiness will come about. After this, he will then ask for those who have the abilities to make the things mandated out of those same offerings. In this, they will learn of the sanctification of the people by the Lord for sacred purposes. Each step in its own order is a reflection of the process of sanctification of the people. They must first be given the law, which reflects their sign as a people. This is done in the repetition of the Sabbath law. The next is giving of what one possessed in honor of the Lord. And the third is the giving of oneself in the service of the Lord. In the church, there are those who are saved and who are given the sign of that salvation, baptism. This reflects the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which was received upon belief in Jesus Christ. There are next those who are being obedient to the giving of their possessions to build and sustain the ministry of the Lord. And then there are those who are set apart to minister to the Lord with their lives and according to their abilities. This is what we are seeing reflected in these verses right here today. Verse 1 continues, And said to them, These are the words which the Lord has commanded you to do. These words should rightfully have been placed after Exodus 31 verse 18, a full eight sermons ago. This was when the Lord handed the first two tablets of stone to Moses. He should have simply received them, turned down the mountain, and found the people respectfully and obediently awaiting his return with the word of the Lord for the future conduct of their lives. Instead, chapter 32 introduced the sin of the golden calf and all that occurred after that. Instead of a joyous regathering of Moses to the people, there was wrath, indignation, and death associated with his return. Because of that incident, a new direction in the law came about as well. We have to keep reminding ourselves that none of those things were unknown to God. 
and they were ultimately a part of his unfolding plan. However, it didn't change the nature of the catastrophe which came upon the people, nor does it change the many variations in direction which resulted in the occurrences of these intervening chapters. And they were very important in the, the respect to redemptive history. So we can't just say, oh, it should have happened and that didn't happen and we're in a new direction now. The Lord knew that these things would happen. And that goes back to what I said about Tuesday's election. Whatever happens, the Lord knows what's going to happen. But he has given us the choice to determine our future. Moses' shining face was given as a permanent reminder to the people of this. And when I say permanent, it is a reminder which continues to this very day. Only in Christ is the veil taken away and the glory of God revealed in a new and a marvelous way. As you can see, everything occurred as it should. The intervening eight chapters have formed an integral part of the unfolding plan of the ages. Understanding that, we now return to where the account left off. The last thing before the giving of the original tablets of the commandments to Moses was that of the law of the Sabbath. As I said, the giving of the Sabbath law to the people in connection with the building of the tabernacle was for the purpose of tying it into that sanctuary. The sanctuary is where the Lord is to reside. It signifies that he is dwelling among his people. Once again, the reason for the Sabbath's inclusion here is because it, like every other detail which has been given concerning the tabernacle, ultimately points to Jesus, to Jesus Christ, his person, and his work for us. That physical manifestation of the tabernacle being among the people is now realized in the giving of the Spirit to the people of the church in his finished work. This is why the Sabbath is no longer required. And I wish people could understand this. It's something that some people cannot seem to grasp. I get email after email after email about that precept. What about the Sabbath? Because they keep being misled by other groups that are saying you have to observe a Sabbath. The rest which was anticipated for God's people is realized in his completion of the work of the law. And this is why Hebrews 4.3 now says that we who have believed do enter that rest. In the Old Covenant, man worked and then rested. In the New Covenant, man rests and then works. A picture is made of the process of salvation in these two dispensations. Israel worked six days and then rested on the Sabbath. It was in anticipation of the time of rest which lay ahead when all things would be restored in Christ. We rest in Christ and then do works for Christ. Not for salvation, but for our walk in Christ and in anticipation of the heavenly rewards which he promises us. This is all reflected first in the law of the Sabbath and then in the fulfillment of that law of the Sabbath in Christ. Now that law is briefly summarized for the people to hear. Verse 2, work shall be done for six days, but the seventh day shall be a holy day for you, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. The law of the Sabbath was given in Exodus 31 verses 12 through 17. However, the first spoken mandate by Moses to the people actually parallels only verse 15. Although not a direct quote, it carries all of the substance of that verse. Also, he has abbreviated the substance of the words that were given to him, but the main point of the instruction is carefully repeated here to the people. They are to work six days and then have a Shabbat Shabbaton, or a Sabbath of rest to the Lord as a holy day. The instructions for the building of the tabernacle lie just ahead, its construction, though, was not to take precedence over the Sabbath. Rather, they were to rest each week from their work. Now, of the words of this verse right here, Joseph Benson, a great scholar who I admire 
a lot, says the following. And I want you to be careful because he's wrong. He says, work for the tabernacle, but on the seventh day, they must not strike a stroke. No, not at the tabernacle work. And here's what he says. The honor of the Sabbath was above that of the sanctuary. That is not correct. The Sabbath has no more honor than the sanctuary itself. As we've seen, and we will see again and again, every detail of the sanctuary points to Jesus, to Christ. The Sabbath rest also points to Jesus, to Christ. That's right. It simply would make no sense to work for Christ on a day which points to Christ. In fact, in Leviticus 26, verse 2, and this is why we need to understand all of the precepts of the Bible, the Sabbath and reverence for the sanctuary are, guess what? They're tied together in one thought. Here's what it says. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Though the Israelites didn't realize these things, we now do if we're willing to search out the word. What was given in type and in shadow is realized in the marvelous Lord who fulfilled those same types and shadows. The Sabbath was to be a day that the people heeded according to the word of the Lord. If they didn't heed, the penalty is now repeated from chapter 31. Verse 2 continuing, whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. These words here also reflect the substance of Exodus 31 verse 15. The Sabbath looked forward to the coming rest of God, which was lost when man was cast out of the Garden of Eden. When Adam disobeyed the word of the Lord, his punishment was this, Cursed is the ground for your sake, in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Man was destined to work in order to survive, implying that this was not previously the case. During my sermon on the law of the Sabbath, one person who was obviously caught up in the legalism of either the Seventh-day Adventists or some Hebrew roots movement argued that the Sabbath was God's standard for man all along. He said it's an eternal edict. Not only can that not be inferred from Scripture at all, it is completely false. I directed him back to the original giving of the Sabbath, which was in Exodus chapter 16, where it was first presented to man. Now, one has to remember that Genesis chapter 2 was not recorded until the time of Moses. Here's what Genesis 2 verses 1 through 3 says. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. After that, Nothing is mentioned of the seventh day of rest all the way until Exodus chapter 16, which was thousands of years later. And the words that were used in that sermon were very, very specific, showing that it was now a new aspect of God's dealing with man. Further, it was a new aspect which dealt solely with one group of people on the entire planet, who? Jews, Israel. The heresy of Sabbath observance as a necessary requirement in today's church is really sad. All the information we need for salvation is found in Paul's epistles. He is the apostle to the Gentiles. He clearly defines what we are to do. Precisely, it's very, very meticulous how he tells us what we're to do in order to be saved and then in order to be pleasing to God after salvation and how also to instruct others in meeting those exact same goals. 
Nowhere in Paul's writings does he ever indicate anything concerning the Sabbath except to argue against it as an observance. And this is especially so in Romans 14, verse 5, and Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17. But it is implicitly true in everything that he writes. What part of the concept of grace these heretics don't understand is very hard to grasp. It is a simple word with a very simple meaning, as is the concept of a gift. One doesn't work in order to receive a gift. And though the Sabbath is a day of not actively working, it is a day of spiritual work in order to not physically work. That's realized in the next verse. Verse 3, you shall kindle no fire throughout your dwellings on the Sabbath day. One must do something in order to not actively do something. Along with all the other things that the people have already been instructed to do on the Sabbath day, a new requirement is now added in. No fire is to be kindled in any dwelling on the Sabbath. This thought can be taken as an addendum to what was stated in Exodus 16, verse 23, which said this. Then he said to them, this is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today and boil what you will boil and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until morning. No manna was provided on the Sabbath, and so they were to prepare their food a day in advance for the Sabbath. As a further restraint, they were told to not even kindle a fire in this verse. To kindle a fire at this point in history was a very laborious process. All right, As food wasn't cooked, they were not to consider making a fire for any other reason as well. As John Lang says about this, the addition prohibiting the kindling of a fire indicates that the law of the Sabbath is made more rigorous in the matter of abstinence. In other words, you have to work in order to not work. The Israelites were to actively sustain from every work in every possible way. Now in Christ, we are given a different aspect of the same precept. We are not told to actively sustain from every work in order to merit God's favor. Instead, we are to rest in the finished work of Christ. In the end, whether before the cross or after, it is all done in relation to Jesus Christ. Another great scholar who I admire even more than Joseph Benson is Matthew Henry, and he does a terrible job of his analysis on these two Sabbath verses. I don't mean to cut people down, but I want you to understand why we're in the shape that we're in as far as things like the Sabbath. Here's what he says. The mild and easy yoke of Christ has made our Sabbath duties more delightful and our Sabbath restraints less irksome than those of the Jews. Well, that doesn't make any sense because if we have a Sabbath, then we're supposed to be doing what the Jews are doing. Okay, he goes on. But we are the more guilty by neglecting them. Neglecting what? Surely God's wisdom in giving us the Sabbath with all the mercies of its purposes are sinfully disregarded. It is nothing to pour contempt on the blessed day, which a bounteous God has given to us for our growth in grace with the church below and to prepare us for happiness with the church above. Matthew Henry errs in his analysis, like many others, in moving the Saturday Sabbath to a Sunday Sabbath. Guess what? There's no such thing as a Sunday Sabbath. The Sabbath is Saturday, the seventh day of the week. In its fulfillment, it ended. Again, if one departs from Paul's doctrine for the church age, there is no doctrine for the church age. All theology thus becomes a pick-and-choose path to God. As we close out this section, let us remember a few key points. The Sabbath is a part of the law. The law is fulfilled by Christ, and it is annulled. Salvation is a gift which comes by grace. A gift cannot be earned, and grace is unmerited favor. 
attempting to be justified before God through works sets aside both the notion of receiving a gift as well as the granting of grace. Rest in Christ, trust in Christ, and be pleased to be reconciled to God solely by the work of Christ. Thank God for Jesus Christ. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. In me you shall find your rest. What I look for is faith that is true, and in this I shall put you to the test. I am the Lord, pay heed unto me, for I will give you a day of rest. If you will simply trust, you will see that in my presence you will be eternally blessed. Come unto me, you who are weary, and in my presence there will be a peaceful rest. Come unto me, leave your life so dreary, if the land of paradise restored is your hope-filled quest. Our second thought today is an offering to the Lord. It's verses 4 through 9. Verse 4, And Moses spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord commanded, saying, These words begin the second and final major section of the chapter, which will be divided into four smaller sections. Moses will first recount the substance of Exodus 25, verses 2 through 7, which concerns the offering of the people for the construction of the sanctuary. The Hebrew reads, Zehadavar asher tziva Yehovah. This is the word that commanded Yehovah. It is to be remembered that it was not long before that the incident with the golden calf had occurred. At that time, the people had said this to Aaron. They said, come, make us gods that we shall go, that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. In response to that, it says, And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Once the calf was finished, Aaron indicated it was a representation of Jehovah. The people had willingly given their treasure for a false god. Now Moses would ask something of them as directed by the true God. Verse 5, Take from among you an offering to the Lord. This is to be an offering to Jehovah. It is thus infinitely more worthy than the false idol to which they willingly broke off their earrings. Everything that is needed can be expected to be obtained from this offering. It would make no sense for the Lord to plan the construction of it without knowing in advance that each and everything that was necessary for its completion would be available. Understanding this, it will still require the stirring of the hearts of the people to give of what they possess. However, there would be no breaking off or tearing away their prized possessions like Aaron asked of them. Instead, they were asked to let their hearts guide them. Verse 5 continues, Whoever is of a willing heart. A new word is introduced here, nadiv. All right? Think of yourselves. Do you have a willing heart to give of your things to the Lord? Once again, I'm not asking for that for the superior word. I'm saying for the Lord. For whatever ministry the Lord places upon your heart, are you willing to give to the Lord? This word, nadiv, is an adjective which comes from the verb nadav, which means willing. Nadiv means free or liberal or even a noble or a prince. The idea is that a noble person would be a charitable giver. This is what the Lord is asking for concerning the materials for the sanctuary, giving with a charitable heart, not out of grudging necessity. Is this you? Do you feel like every time you give to an organization, you're doing it to buy God's favor? Are you doing it because somebody's looking and you feel bad if you don't? Then you're not giving willingly. Even in the Old Testament, the people for this aspect of their religious lives were asked to give willingly, not begrudgingly. Verse 5 continues, Let him bring it as an offering to the Lord. The word offering, or terumah, is something which is lifted up to the Lord. 
It is an acknowledgment of his exalted status, and thus the offering is to be lifted up as an oblation to him. Is this what your offering to the Lord is? You're saying, Lord, I'm doing this for you, or are you doing it for one of the other reasons I mentioned? Are you doing it willingly or grudgingly? Give it to him as an offering, lift it up. This is set in complete contrast to that which was given for the making of the golden calf. The difference could not be any more distinct in these two accounts that the Lord has placed into his word. The requesting of these materials and the direction for the construction of the sanctuary is an understood proclamation that the covenant relationship has been restored and that the Lord has agreed to be Israel's God and to dwell among them in that capacity. And so the materials are now named. Each was described in minute detail in the past concerning their symbolism and how it pointed to Christ. Here, we're just briefly going to look it over, but if you miss those sermons, I would ask you to go back and watch them because they point to Christ in so many ways that you can't believe it. We'll start with verse 5, continuing gold, silver, and bronze. Zahav, or gold, is the finest of the biblical metals. It symbolizes all the way through the Bible. Every one of these things that I'm going to describe to you, all the way through the Bible is consistent. It never changes. Old Testament, new, this author or that author, it's always the same. God is very consistent in his words. It symbolizes purity and holiness, royalty, and divinity. Kesef, or silver, is another precious metal, which is associated with redemption. Anytime you see somebody talking about silver, it's going to be referring to redemption. Nechoshet, or bronze, mainly symbolizes judgment, but also endurance. The judgment can be negative, such as in punishment, or it can be judgment of purification and justification. Verse 6, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen, and goat's hair. Tekelet, or blue, is associated with the law, especially the keeping of the law. Argaman, or purple, is purple or blue-red. It speaks of royalty, or that which pertains to or belongs to a king. It is a mixture of blue and red, and so it is a combination of what those two colors mean, the law for blue and war, blood, and or judgment for red. Tolaat shani, or literally, red worms. Together, the words here are translated as scarlet, but implying the scarlet which comes from the tola, or the crimson grub worm. And if you saw that sermon, you know exactly why and what that crimson grub worm pictures. If you don't, go to the 23rd, 22nd Psalm, and you'll see it written right there. It's pointing to Christ in a marvelous way. This scarlet, or red, pictures war, blood, and or judgment. And then shesh, or fine linen, symbolizes righteousness. Get to the book of Revelation, and the people are adorned in fine white clothes, and what does it say? Righteousness. It's all the way through the Bible, it will be the same. Izim, or goat hair, symbolizes awareness of sin, and that it will be punished. Verse 7, ram skins dyed red, badger skins, and acacia wood. Orot elim me'adamim, or skins of rams dyed red, symbolize power and protection in the skins, an atonement for sin in the dyed red color. Orot techashim does not indicate badger skins. If your Bible says that, it's not correct. Rather, it indicates the skins of a porpoise or a sea cow. The sea is representative of the world of chaos, confusion, and rebellion. Thus, these skins symbolize protection from that. Within, there is order, harmony, and peace. And atseshitim, or wood acacias, symbolize humanity. But more Humanity which is incorruptible, and therefore it symbolizes Christ's perfect and incorruptible humanity. Verse 8, oil for the light and spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense. 
Shemen la ma'or, or oil for lighting, symbolizes the presence of the spirit, which is for spiritual understanding, specifically that which provides illumination. Besamim le shemen hamishcha, or spice for anointing oil, symbolizes the anointing of the Holy Spirit, first for Christ's work, and then that which is given to us through Christ's work. Liktoret hasamim, or incense fragrant, symbolizes prayer to God, but specifically acceptable prayers to God. Verse 9, onyx stones. Avne shoham, or stones onyx, are mentioned in addition to those which are going to be mentioned later in this verse. And so, it's in addition to those in the shoulder piece and in the ephod of the high priest. And because of this, these stones are probably specifically referring to the Urim and Thummim. If you remember that sermon, they're the ones that determine God's will. If this is so, and it is likely, then they signify intercession on behalf of the people of God. Verse 9 continues, and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. Avne milium la ephod ve la choshen, or stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastplate. Exodus 28 verse 9 tells us that the stones for the shoulder piece of the ephod are to be onyx stones. Thus they symbolize the bearing of the burden of the people in a mediatorial role. The other stones, which are to be used in the breastplate of judgment, are specifically named in Exodus 28, verses 17 through 20. The exact identity of many of these stones is unknown. But because they're in the breastplate of judgment, they symbolize the judgment rendered for God's people through the work of Jesus Christ. Hints of Christ in every detail of the book, waiting for us to study and show ourselves approved. What a marvel when we open it up and look, how our souls are stirred, how our hearts are moved. Christ is there. It all speaks of him and his work. What he has done for us was all told in advance. Let us not fail to look for him. Let us not this obligation shirk. Each discovery is like joining in a heavenly dance. Thank you for this marvel, your precious superior word. It is filled with wonder. It is beautiful and marvelous. Christ is there in every detail. It's all about our Lord. Yes, every single verse tells us of our Lord Jesus. Our third thought today is the Lord's to-do list verses 10 through 19. Verse 10, all who are gifted artisans among you shall come and make all that the Lord has commanded. This call is now made from the general of the previous section, meaning all who had a willing heart, to the specific of this section, meaning all who are gifted artisans. Those specifically for the work of this section who were mentioned before were a guy named Bezalel and a guy named Aholiav. They are noted in Exodus 31, verses 2 through 10, and the others in Exodus 28, verse 3, for the making of the garments. Those whom the Lord already knew are now being called for the service of making this marvelous dwelling place for the Lord God. In it, there is a logical order to what we will see next. First, the tabernacle is mentioned. This is followed up immediately with those things by which it will be constructed. After this will come the contents of the tabernacle, first for the most holy place, and then the holy place, and then the furniture which is outside of the tabernacle in the courtyard. After that, those things which comprise the courtyard itself. Then the pegs are mentioned, first for the tabernacle, and then for the court, with their cords. And finally, the garments for each aspect of the ministry are given. We will go over them without any detail at all, because all of these details have already been given in the past. Verse 11, the tabernacle, its tent, its coverings, its clasps, its boards, its bars, its pillars, and its sockets. In this verse, two separate words are used, hamishkan, or the tabernacle, and aholo, or the tent. 
The two are distinct things and are not to be confused. Each of the items mentioned in this verse perfectly and beautifully prefigure Jesus Christ. Verse 12, the ark and its poles with the mercy seat and the veil of the covering. The ark and its mercy seat is mentioned in Exodus 25 verses 10 through 22. The veil is detailed in Exodus 26, 31 through 33. In this verse, the term paroket hamasak, or the veil of the covering, is now used instead of simply the word paroket, which was used before. It is still speaking specifically of the veil, which divides the most holy place from the holy place, but a fuller name is given in this particular description. The ark symbolizes Christ, who is the embodiment of, and thus the fulfillment of the law. The mercy seat is Christ, our satisfaction of the law through his shed blood. The veil represents Christ's body through which we have restored access. If you remember, what was it that happened when Jesus Christ died on the cross? The veil was torn, restored access into the most holy place, to the place where the law was satisfied and where the satisfaction was made in his blood. We have that because of Christ. It's marvelous what this pictures. Verse 13, the table and its poles, its utensils, and the showbread. This is speaking of the table of showbread, which was mentioned in Exodus 25, 23 through 30. It, in short, details Christ our bread and thus our source and sustenance of life. Verse 14, also the lampstand for the light, its utensils, its lamps, and the oil for the light. The menorah and its associated articles are mentioned in Exodus 25, 31 through 40. That, if you remember, was an amazing study. Every detail of which pointed to Christ, and there were a million details in that thing. The servant, our Messiah, our light, our wise counselor, our word of God, the giver of dispensations of time, and so much more. The symbolism of the menorah is so exceptional that I don't think we're ever going to fully realize everything that it portrays. Verse 15, the incense altar, its poles, the anointing oil, the sweet incense. The incense altar was detailed much later in the instructions provided to Moses. It wasn't until Exodus 30 verses 1 through 10 that it was named. The anointing oil and the sweet incense came later in that same chapter. They were detailed in order from verses 22 through 38. The incense altar pointed to Christ's intercessory work for us. Think of incense going up to God. The anointing oil minutely detailed Christ's work, which was accomplished for us. And the sweet incense symbolizes his ongoing work as our mediator and our intercessor. Verse 15 continues, And the screen for the door at the entrance of the tabernacle. The screen door was the covering entranceway into the tabernacle itself. It is described in Exodus 26, verses 26 and 27. It symbolized the work of Christ for us, which allows us access once again into the heavenly realms. In short, it pictures Christ, our door to salvation. Remember what he said in John? I am the, I am not that one I'm thinking of. I am the door. The way is still a little further out. We're going to get to that in just a minute. But he said, I am the door. Okay. Verse 16, the altar of burnt offering with its bronze grating, its poles, all its utensils. This altar is detailed in Exodus 27, 1 through 8. In short, it symbolizes Christ, our judgment on sin, and thus our justifier. Verse 16 continues, and the laver in its base. This item was mentioned seemingly way out of place, as a few others were, in Exodus 30, verses 17 through 21. However, as we saw, it was actually perfectly placed in those instructions. In short, it signifies, among other things, Christ, our sanctifier, and our purifier. Verse uh, 17, the hangings of the court, its pillars, 
their sockets, and the screen for the gate of the court. These things were detailed in order in Exodus 27, 9 through 19. They symbolize those things which Christ accomplished in his ministry and which are open and visible to all who will simply look. They portray the evident Christ who is on display to the world, but who is also limited in effect only to those who enter through him the, go ahead, say it, way, the truth, and the life, and which is seen in the gate for the court. So you have the way, the truth, and the life, and then you have the door, okay? He is the expectant Christ, open and available to all who will simply come. Verse 18, the pegs of the tabernacle, the pegs of the court and their cords. The pegs were all to be made of bronze. They speak of judgment rendered as they are what hold the tabernacle to the court hangings by being firmly planted in the ground. They speak of permanency. The cords tie between the two. Surprisingly, the mathar or cords have never been mentioned until right now. The word comes from the verb yatar, meaning leftover or abundant or to preserve. Thus, they signify the ability of Christ's judgment to preserve us and to tie us to all other aspects of his work. It's not that his sanctification does one thing and that's it. He justifies us here and that's it. Every single aspect of what Christ does is tied together, symbolized in these cords. What he has done, he is abundantly able to keep for us on that great day of salvation which lies ahead. Verse 19, the garments of ministry for ministering in the holy place. These are a little, the, the translation here is a little off, and you may remember it when I explain it here. They're called Big Day Hasarad, or cloths of service. They're lumped in here by the New King James Version with the garments of Aaron and his sons. However, they were described in Exodus 31, verse 10, where they were noted most probably as the cloths which covered the sacred articles of the sanctuary as they were transported from place to place. You never saw the Ark of the Covenant. They were covered with these Big Day Hasarad, or cloths of service. The same is true with all of the most holy articles. They thus reflect Christ concealed. His actual person and his work are covered and not viewable to the people of the world. Does anybody here see Jesus right now? No. Where do we go to find Jesus? That's right, in the Word. He's not viewable to us, and we are to trust in the work of Christ, and thus they symbolize our faith in his work, which is, other than recorded in Scripture, completely unseen to us. Verse 19 finishes with these words, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons to minister as priests. The garments for the priesthood, along with the things the high priest wore on his garments, comprise all of chapter 28. The garments in particular point to the ministry of Christ, his nature, his attributes, and his work. The garments for Aaron's sons pictured Christ's work on our behalf, covering us in his righteousness. Thank you. White garments. Very good. Somebody paid attention. You get an A-plus for the day. As I said from the beginning of our passage today, there was a lot of repetition from those 22 previous sermons. But I bet quite a bit of it that we looked at here just now brought back some great reminders of the magnificent pictures of what those sermons detailed. And as we've highlighted the giving of the people in their goods and in their services, I would like to mention one more way of giving which some of you may not have thought of. If you have just popped into this sermon and you haven't seen all of what those chapters that I just described on the anticipated construction of the sanctuary and all of those implements actually detail, you could give the Lord your time and go back and watch them. If you're really brave, you could go back and start watching from Genesis 1, verse 1, as several people have done. 
and offer your time to the Lord in learning his word. Doesn't cost you anything except the time that you're spending in something that's honoring him anyway. Time is the fire in which we burn, and it is a candle which is quickly being consumed. But it is also the school in which we learn, and therefore a wise use of it, of your time, is one of the greatest things that you could ever offer to the Lord. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need you to make anything for him. He's totally sufficient in all ways. What he needs is you. And if you have been paying attention, then give of yourselves in a different way. But if you haven't, or if you're just coming in to see these sermons right now, say, I'm going to get to know the Lord through the word of God. Do it. He'll reward you for it, I assure you. I would put learning his word right at the top of what you can do to offer to him. But no matter what you choose to do, what you choose to give, or what services you decide to offer, do it all for the glory of God, which is found in Jesus Christ the Lord. And under the odd, 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 and I mean this sincerely, possibility that you are here right now not knowing Christ the Lord, well, you'd better get that squared away right now. And so I'm going to tell you how to do it. The Bible says that you have sin in your life, and that infinitely separates you from your Creator. The wages of sin is death. And we're all destined to sin. I'm sorry, to die. We're all in sin, and we're destined to die because we have sin in our life. And if we don't get this corrected before we die, we will be infinitely and forever eternally separated from our God. And Christ came to remedy that for us by coming and living this law, which is pictured in all of these marvelous implements. He came to live that life for us in our place and to say, I love humanity, which I created enough to take away the sin debt that they owe and they can't pay. And he lived that perfect life under this law. He died in fulfillment of the law. And he came out of the grave to prove it. He could not stay in the grave because the wages of sin is death and he had no sin of his own. It was impossible for death to hold him. And he says, if you will simply trust by faith that I can do what I have said that the Bible says I've done, I will take away your sin and you will be reconciled to me forever. This is what God offers. So please, if you've never called on Jesus Christ, do it today. And then do what's pictured in these things right here. You've given your life to the Lord. Now give of yourself to the Lord. If you have money, give money. If you have time, give time. If you have a service, give a service. And if you're sick of your job, quit it. Go to seminary, get ordained, and preach. Do something for the Lord. Time is short. Our closing verse, 2 Corinthians 9, verses 7 and 8. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. He's not going to take from you something and not return it in abundance because he wants you to give for his good work, whatever it is and to whoever it is. If he's put it on your heart, do it. Next week is Exodus 35. It's verses 20 through 35. Fifteen verses it spans. It's entitled Offerings and artisans. That's our 98th Exodus sermon. And the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part those waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? I got a poem today, which isn't very long, 19 verses. It's entitled, A Call to Service. Then Moses gathered all the congregation of the children of Israel together and said to them, to the whole nation, these are the words he did tell. These are the words which the Lord has commanded you to do according to his word. 
Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh day shall be a holy day for you, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death, so you shall do. So you shall kindle no fire, as I now say, throughout your dwellings on the Sabbath day. And Moses spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord commanded. This is the saying. These are the words he was relaying. Take from among you an offering to the Lord, whoever is of willing heart. Let him bring it as an offering to the Lord, gold, silver, and bronze. But this is just the start. Blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen, and goat's hair as well. Ramskins dyed red, badger skins, and acacia wood. Such are needed as to you, I now tell. Oil for the light, and spices for the anointing oil, and the sweet incense too. Onyx stones and stones to be set just right in the ephod and in the breastplate are needed from you. All who are gifted artisans among you shall come as the Lord has commanded, shall make all. The tabernacle, its tent, its coverings, its clasps, its boards, its bards, its pillars, its sockets, according to his call. The ark and its poles with the mercy seat and the veil of the covering as he did relay. The table and its poles, all its utensils and the showbread, as the word does say. Also the lampstand for the light, its utensils, its lamps, and the oil for the light as well. The incense altar, its poles, the anointing oil, the sweet incense, so now I tell. And the screen for the door at the entrance of the tabernacle in that place. The altar of burnt offering with its bronze grating, its poles, all its utensils, and the laver, and its base. The hangings of the court, its pillars, their sockets, according to these words. And the screen for the gate of the court. The pegs of the tabernacle, the pegs of the court, and their cords. The garments of ministry for ministering in the holy place. The holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons to minister as priests before my face. We have been called to follow a process in the Lord. First, to rest in him and what he has done for us. We come to do this through the hearing of his word and then showing faith in the Lord Jesus. After that, we are asked for what we have to give, the things which we possess as our offering to God, with a willing heart in this life that we live and without compulsion in this walk that we trod. And then, if we have been given even more, if we possess a special ability or a skill, we should use that for the Lord. Yes, let us open that door and use it for his glory with all of our will. In this, the Lord is surely pleased, we know. And so let us not hold back from him these things. Serve the Lord with all your heart as you grow as faithful Christians and all that title brings. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to listen to your word, to hear it, to rejoice in it, and to be reminded of what we've seen in the past because we so quickly forget. It's such a big word and it's so complicated. And so the reminder is really wonderful. And Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that you have given us to use of ourselves, our times and our, our treasures and the things that we can do in an offering to you. Thank you that uh, there is a willing heart of the people of God to continue preaching the word of God, even in these dark and desperate times. And Lord, one more time, I come to you in petition for what is coming on this nation in the next two days. I would pray that you would respond according to your wisdom. And if we're to be swept away because of our decisions, that is our decision. We're making it, and you will respond accordingly. And if we're to be preserved from the wickedness which is taking over this world so quickly, help us to survive through the inevitable economic collapse, whether it's the left or right that wins. It's going to fall. And when it does, help us to survive through that. And in the end, to come out of it saying, we are a people of the Lord God and we call on the Lord God, and we recognize that Jesus is the Lord God. 
He is our Lord, and we praise him. And we do this now in our hearts, in this church, and hopefully as a nation soon, once again. To your glory, O oh God, we pray this. And we do it in his exalted, beautiful name. Amen. Amen. Like I say, after uh, this sermon, we'll have lots more repetition right up almost until the end of uh, the book of Exodus. Lots of repetition. And so what I've done is I've, I've made some sermons that are completely different than anything else. This is kind of an in introductory. I can't remember next week. I, I, I don't remember what it is, if it's more kind of like today. But eventually we're going to get into two or three or four sermons that are just completely different than anything I've done before. And uh, that's just so that you don't hear exactly. What, what's happening here is the Lord was up on Sinai. And he was given the instructions of what to make. And we went through those in minute detail. And then it's going to say that Bezalel and Aholiab made word for word, almost word for word, all the way through what was given in all those instructions. And so I could either, uh, you know, just continue and repeat those sermons, which you've already heard, or I could do something different. And so that's what I've done is to do something a little bit different. And like I say, I can't remember what I planned for next week, but uh, when we get to it, it may be one more week like this and then a, a few different sermons, but I hope you'll enjoy them. I hope that you'll, you'll uh, find something good in there. And as I said, many of you weren't here at the beginning of the service, but tomorrow is my last sermon to be typed in the book of Exodus. And I've loved this word. I've literally cherished this book. The things that the Lord has revealed in there are beyond amazing. It just chokes me up just even thinking about how precious this word is. And that so few people are willing to take the time and to preach on them anymore. And I'm not trying to say that this is great on my part. I'm saying that it's an honor on my part that the Lord has allowed me to do this and that you are willing to listen to the precious word of God, which all points to the coming Messiah and what he has done for us. And last week, heck, we spent almost half the sermon in the New Testament because it's so relevant. Time and again, we see the Lord revealed perfectly in these things. It's, just, it's a marvel. Thank you, Jesus. We get the instruction for the Lord's Supper directly from the Bible. That's where we belong in our lives, directly in the Bible at all times. When we're in the projects telling people about Jesus, we ought to be doing it from the Bible, not making it up out of our heads. And when we're sitting around fellowshipping at lunch or at dinner or in our home, we ought to be doing it thinking about Jesus, telling, as the Bible says, when we come in and when we go out, when we sit down and when we arise, Jesus, talk about the Lord, talk about his greatness. This is the only life that we have. And I'm going to tell you what, I'm 50, and it seems like I was in high school yesterday. And to think that my mom had her blankety-blank birthday a week ago, and my dad's a couple years older than her. And I bet you they think the same thing. I bet you they think, gee, I was just a kid a day ago. And then you read that psalm, that psalm that I read to you. Life is just a whisper, and then it's gone. And we've got all of eternity based on the life that we're living right now. Think about those ramifications when you go home and you watch a lot of TV, right? What are you going to do for the Lord? What are you going to do for him? Right now counts forever. I didn't make that up. R.C. Sproul did, but I love the, the thing. Right now counts forever. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and he would have given a blessing over it. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu. Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe. Brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it. 
And he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper. And he blessed us as well with these words. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Borei Peri HaGuffin. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if you saw, but that lizard was all over this he's place. Right there. Oh, there he is on the wall. He was all over running around me during the sermon. Very distracting. He's a, yeah, we got to give him a name. Somebody think of a good name for this guy. Uh, Jonah. Jonah. That, that's, you know what? I'm going to tell you something when you sit down in a minute. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. I'm sorry. I'm not paying attention. Glory won't follow up because he's going to be gone. Yes. Yes. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. While Judy's walking by, just so you know, she painted those four paintings up there of uh, Christ, the cross, the uh, nails, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, just when you go by, take a peek at them. They are new. Yes, she just I, did them and brought them for us. There you well. There, you you've got before? a good you've got a good eye. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Say hi to your wife. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That left hand. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Brother Jim, the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's good to see you here. Thank you. I don't get on Facebook except when I make a post, so you've got to keep me posted what you're up to, okay? Yeah. I, uh, Got two two names to vote to uh, voted to name him. One was Jonah, and the other one was Obama. And he said because Obama's going to be gone soon, implying that he's going to be gone soon too. And I hope not. We need him. But the name Jonah. I was sitting here as I was uh, getting ready while the uh, uh, music was playing and Bob was talking, thinking, what am I going to do after Exodus before we get into Leviticus? Because we did Ruth after Exodus. And I was thinking maybe we'd do the Book of Jonah because it's short, it's wonderful, it's all about Christ. And so that just kind of confirmed it when you shouted out Jonah. So we'll do Jonah after the book of Exodus. How's that? And then we'll get into Leviticus. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to come to this table and to remember what it signifies, the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not the end because it says we do this until he comes again. He's not a dead Savior. He's a risen Savior. He's exalted to the highest heavens, and we're waiting on him to come and pluck us out of here and to take us to be at the most marvelous ceremony ever conceived by any person ever. We can't even imagine what's coming the day that he comes for us. And Lord, may that day be soon. Amen. Amen.